Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Create week two. We're in this series on uh, creativity that we started last week. And what we tried to, what I tried to just dismantle last week was the, the thought that I think we all have when it comes to creativity, where it's either this, I have it or I don't. I'm either right-brained or left-brained, and I am either a creative person or I'm not. And we really cut through that to say, no, God has made all people. And so in Genesis 1, we see the creation mandate where he says, go into the world, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and, and cultivate the ground. Like bring, bring the goodness of God, bring the presence of God with you into the places that you go in the earth. That was, that was something that was given to all humankind. So every human somewhere in them has this desire to make things or to cultivate things or innovate things or try and get into it and make things. Like at, at the root of creativity is this word create. And out of create, like if I could reduce that down to a thought just as simply as possible, it would be to make something. And so then as Christians, our distinct and unique approach to creativity is this desire, this desire to partner with the creator of the universe in now the renewal of all things. And so Christian creativity is having the capacity to carry and bring the life of God into any circumstance that we would find ourselves in. That, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, like Bezalel as he built the tabernacle, filled with the Holy Spirit, given this gift, given the, called out to do this thing at a certain time in a certain place, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing the capacity for other people around him to encounter the presence of God. And that's what we get to do. And so, so as you encounter a coworker that's going through a really tough spot in their marriage, you hopefully, as a Christian, don't just see that as like, well, I'm going to, you know, give them some good marriage tips. But you actually get to enter into that tough spot with them and you get to say, listen, here's what the Lord has done in my marriage. Like it was, it was on the brink. I, like I thought it was over and God infused hope. God infused life. God infused joy back into my marriage. And you get to look at that dark thing that's happening in the world with your coworker's marriage and you get to speak the character and the nature of God into that circumstance. That is Christian creativity. You, you might have a friend who's going through it financially. They don't know how they're going to make their house payment. They don't know how they're going to put clothes on their kids' backs. And, and you get to step in and you get to look, say, okay, wait, me and some friends, we're going to display the generosity of God to this person. That God, it's not just me going, oh my gosh, I have this obligation to give and to do nice things for other people. But you go, no, I've encountered a God who is generous. And he has now given me the capacity to take that generosity out into the world and to cultivate it in the dark places that I see where people don't have what they would need. Uh, you, you look in your community and you see kids in foster care and you go, how can I, to those kids, even though they are living without their parents, how can I display to them the adopting love of God? How can I bring the life of God into their life? And, and so we as, we as Christians have this, this gifting really to be in tune with the creator as we go and participate in how he's working and moving and building and cultivating his kingdom here on earth. And, and the question that we sort of left lingering with last week was like, all right, cool. Like I'm made to be creative, but what, like how, what do you want me to do with that? And that was intentional, right? To get to this week to go, well, how we're going to do it is we're going to, we're going to restore and reclaim our identity as a creative minority. 
I'm going to unpack this kind of phrase for the next couple weeks. Be, becoming a creative minority would be the subtitle for this week's message. And I'll explain that as we go. But before we even get into it, I just want to lay before you that this is difficult. It's hard. This is not like easy American Christianity that we can create sometimes where it's like, well, just go to church on Sundays, have a good life, have a good job, retire, die, go to heaven someday. It's going to be awesome. That's not what this is. This is us seeing our role as the church to get involved in the messy places here on earth. And that's hard. It's hard. It, it's not hard when you're sitting here in the church. Like it's not here at the, at the 1045 service where you're like, yeah, like, uh, I love this place. And then you, it's hard on Monday morning. When your coworker's like, what'd you do this weekend? You're like, not church, don't say church, not church, not church. Ah, uh, you know, went to breakfast on Saturday. You know, we have this like desire, like you talk, you're talking to the barista on your way to, like on your way to church, you're picking up Starbucks and the barista's like, what are you doing the rest of the day? And you're like, oh, hanging out with my friends. And then you like kind of high five your brain because you just said something that wasn't a lie, even though you didn't have to admit that you're about to go to church, right? It's tough because as you carry the presence of God into a situation, if you're actually going to give glory to God at some point, you have to be authentic and willing enough in a moment where your boss recognizes your good behavior. When people around you see the good things that are happening in your marriage, when they want to be more like you as a parent, when they see the way that you're able to carry yourself as a student in the middle of this chaos, and they go, how are you doing this? To give glory to God is to simply involve him in that conversation where you say, listen, sometimes I don't even know, but I know that Jesus has adopted me. He loves me. He's, sought, he's got a plan for me. He sought me. And so, so to take that and to give glory, glory to God is something that can be difficult. Why? Well, because on the one hand, I think a lot of us are insecure about our faith. We get so convinced, and I remember feeling this way as, as a younger guy that, um, you know, I'm not going to really share my faith about Jesus with other people because I just don't know enough verses yet. Like, I don't know that whole Roman road to salvation. Like, I know they're all in there somewhere, but I can't like chapter verse reference them. And so I'm just not going to go there with people because, you know, what if they ask me? And I, I don't know the Bible answer for it. And we diminish the authentic experience of a, of a transformational encounter with the presence of God. And, and we convince ourselves that we have to know all of scripture before we go and talk to anybody about scripture. That's not true. It's not true. You can carry with you a transformed heart and you don't have to know all of scripture. Praise God. Praise God. It's not to say you shouldn't value scripture. You shouldn't be trying to stuff it all in you, but you're not, you're not going to get all of it. Um, the other way that we're insecure is we're insecure in our behavior. You're like, oh, I, I don't act enough like a Christian to go give him glory and to be this kind of creative minority, be creatively representing him everywhere I go. I, I just don't act the right way yet. I'm not mature enough, maybe. It's a more Christian way of saying it. And we get so convinced that our behavior must be perfect before we can witness to people, before we can give God glory for something. Otherwise, people will just discredit it. But what's ironic about that is that the gospel is not about you being perfect and then God loving you. The gospel is you were so far from perfect and yet God loved you enough to start making you perfect. But even now, we aren't perfect. And I get a better amen than that from somebody. Like, and we're not going to be perfect until glory, until heaven. And so we diminish the, we diminish like needing to have this perfect behavior with the actual just true story of the whole gospel. And so we get insecure about our faith. So we're reluctant to tell people. We also um, are just apathetic, if we can be really honest. We get apathetic. We like, 
the affluence that's been given to us in this country has let us drift into apathy. So we become so affluent. We become so uh, like middle-class, just cultured. Everything can be given to us at any given moment. Like you can, uh, and maybe you think of yourself on the lower end of the uh, wealth spectrum here in America, but you're still in America. You still probably drove a car here. You probably have a house that you're going to after this. Like we have things. And so the spiritual urgency to take this news out, to give it to people who are in crisis is difficult because there aren't as many people that are in the kind of crisis that affluence gives us. There's so many different things that are uh, therapeutic, so many different things that are providing us comfort these days that it's letting us drift into a spirit of complacency as Christians. This is like, it's hard for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven because he's made himself so comfortable here on earth. He has access to everything. It's kind of like the question you kids, you struggle with like, what in the world am I going to get my parents for their birthday? Like they have everything already. What, what good news am I going to tell this person? He has the job. He has a family. He has everything going for him. He needs, like, don't you ever pray for the, maybe you don't pray this way. I pray this way for some people sometimes where I'm like, God, would you just like shake them up a little bit? Would you just take away some of their comfort? Would you just take away some of the things that are placing security in and show them that they're weak and like fallible? And so that affluence has led to this complacency. It's allowed us to be apathetic. And then the third one is just flat out, I think we're afraid. I think we're afraid a lot of times. I think we're afraid that like, what else is the world gonna think? And and the reason that fear exists in us uh, largely is is credited to us living in a post-Christian world. So you've maybe heard this phrase before, but I think we, we fail sometimes to unpack what it really means and how it really makes us feel that we're living in 2020 in America in a post-Christian culture. So it can mean several different things, but primarily what it means is it means we've been removed from the halls and seats of power and influence. And like we as Christians have been drifting out towards the fringe of culture. This is happening for some time now where we're now no longer like the kids uh, these days who are there looking up to the famous people who are in seats of power, who are influential, who are people that they're looking up to. Those aren't people who are always Christians. In fact, often they're not. And that's why we kind of as Christians lose our mind when a guy like Justin Bieber comes to faith because we're like, oh my gosh, somebody famous loves Jesus. We lose it for a sec. Because we, we, we as Christians are not known as the cool people or as these people who are shaping and creating culture and these things sitting in the halls of influence and power. We've drifted as Christians off to the fringe. The other place we've been removed, we've also just flat out been reduced from a majority to a minority. It's like, like study after study has confirmed this. In America, Christians are no longer the majority of people in the world. In America, I mean. Probably also in the world. I haven't looked up that study though. Like, we're not the majority. And this is why when you run into someone at the grocery store, when you run into somebody at Starbucks or whatever, you don't, you don't assume that they're a Christian. Uh, and then like, when you find a coworker that is a Christian, you're like, oh, wait, you're, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, where, where do you go to church? You know, like, because we, we don't think that everyone else around us believes the way we do because a lot of them don't. We have slipped down from the majority of people. There once was a time in our country where church was just the thing to do on Sundays. Most people went to church. Most people were maybe following the way of Jesus. And that's not the case anymore. We're a minority. We're a smaller group than what we used to be represented in the greater population. We've also been relabeled. We've been relabeled. And I think this is the one that we feel most viscerally. Like this is the one you, you feel as you're out talking with people. 
Um, no longer is the Christian uh, have an ethic or have a lifestyle that is sought after and held in high esteem and culture. So, so in actually, in a culture where tolerance has become the highest virtue, you think about that for a sec, tolerance is the highest virtue of the culture that we're living in today. Like we have become, we have slipped down and now our ethic um, for marriage, for sexuality, for finances, like all of that has slipped down now. And it's actually seen as dangerous, much less a positive impact on culture. And so we are labeled as Christians as intolerant, as homophobic, as bigoted, all of these different things. Like at best, when you start talking to your coworker about the fact that you love Jesus and you follow after him, like at best, they're going to think you're uneducated or anti-science or just not that cool of a person. You're a prude when it comes to sexuality. At worst though, they're going to think of you as dangerous. Like, oh, Christians are part of the problem, according to culture, not part of the solution. Like you're the reason that all these people feel this way. You're the reason we need to have more tolerance in the, in the world we're living in right? And, and we feel this, don't we? Like, this is why it's so difficult to invite our friends to church. This is why it's so difficult to take a stand on different things. It's why it's so difficult maybe for you, like, th- that you, you feel this tension in you before you start, like, before you talk to the barista about going to church on a Sunday, or you're about to meet with somebody, like, I'm, I'm always meeting with people in coffee shops, and they're like, what are you here for? And I'm like, a meeting, <laughs> you know, like I'm here for a meeting, but really I'm here to open the Bible with a friend. I'm here to study what Jesus taught us and to try and live more like him so that I can make an impact in the world that I'm living in. And it's tense because we're living in this post-Christian world. The biblical word, the biblical theme for that idea is the word exile. We are living as, as citizens of a distant kingdom that we have yet to inherit while sojourning here in America. And, and like, I love our nation. I'm, I'm thankful for our country, but if it were to pass away tomorrow, my allegiance would still belong to Christ. I, like, I, I think that oftentimes we, we just put so much hope and faith in, in who's going to be sitting in office come January, and we neglect the fact that we have the opportunity to represent the kingdom that we actually belong to right now. Right now. And so that's why it's hard. And that so we are living as, in 2020, we are living as Christians in, in exile in a world that does not look like us, that does not think like us, that does not represent our values. And, and so here we are in exile. And the tendency of Christians, oftentimes when you're living in exile, is to fall into conformity or to take yourself out of the equation totally and withdraw. So, so it's, it's such a razor thin margin, especially when you're living in exile, especially when other people don't think like you. And when they think that you're evil, they think you're part of the problem. Your tendency is to want to conform to culture around you. And, and your life would be marked by consistently giving in and okay, like, I don't want to take a stand for like how much alcohol I should be drinking. So I'm just gonna have another round. I'm just gonna have another round. I'm just gonna have another round. And you compromise consistently. And some of you, your lives are marked by compromise. You're consistently just afraid of the confrontation. 
And so you just conform and you seek to blend in. You, you don't want to confront anybody. You don't want to let the truth like great. It, it's, it's hard when truth grates against things that aren't true. And so you, you bow out and you just give in or you act like everybody else at work. You, you view marriage like you're like, yeah, you know what? My spouse isn't making me happy. I am just going to try and find a spouse that's making me happy. And you, you give into these lies and you conform and you start to look like the world that we're not called to be a part of. Remember, we're called to be in exile representing a different kingdom but you give in to what culture is doing around you. The other pitfall would be to withdraw. You think about like the Amish people where they just have like, they're like, no, we're not gonna look like culture. We're gonna bounce. No technology, no cars, no nothing. Like we're just gonna like take ourselves completely out of culture. And what that leaves you with is maybe, maybe you're able to stay super pure, but you, you've lost all means of influencing people. Church is called to be in and involved in the world, not detached from it. And so I think this is such a delicate line for you parents in the room. Like I'm certainly feeling this right now where, where, man, there is a line in my parenting where I am just consistently trying to protect my kids from the world. You don't get to watch that. You don't get to hang out with those kids. No, we're not doing that. And I'm consistently pulling them back, withdrawing them from certain aspects of the world. But, but I can't be so foolish to think that my job as a parent is to worry about them looking like culture. So eventually I got to start also equipping them and training them and resourcing them on how to make decisions and how to fight culture for themselves. Right? But that, like, that is the tension in parenting, is it not? To give them freedom, but to take away freedom so that they are protected, but yet involved in the world. That, that, is, that is tough, and I'm not going to diminish it for a second. It's what we're all in. Help us, Lord Jesus. But so this margin that we walk on between conformity and withdrawal, it becomes all the more razor thin in a time of exile. I think that temptation is always there, but when you are feeling the weight of exile, it becomes all the more difficult not to stumble on one or the other. And that line that we're gonna choose to walk on, that we're gonna talk about over the next two weeks to, to learn how to foot, put our feet surely on this path is this line of being a creative minority. So that phrase, creative minority, it was coined by this historian that also studied philosophy. So I don't know if he was like a philosophical historian or a historical philosopher. Like, I'm not really sure which one it was, but his name was Arnold Toynbee. And he studied civilizations. And, and he and many other historians have concluded there have been 27 civilizations that have existed on planet Earth. And the acceptable form of thought for civilizations was just like civilizations are just like any other organism. At one point, they are born, they grow, they plateau, then they decline, and they eventually die. All civilizations have a life cycle, and it's inevitable until Toynbee realized that that's not actually true. The, the life cycle of a civilization is not fixed. It can actually be elongated with the presence of a creative minority. Here's how he defines a creative minority. This is like in my words, but it's his thoughts. So it's kind of like that Michael Scott quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. It's kind of like, this is Austin Dykeman, but it's really Arnold Toynbee. You following me? Office fans are following me. Everyone else is like, dude, whatever, just talk. <laughs> a creative minority is a community who discovers, innovates solutions to serve. Innovative solutions to serve. Bless and fix the different problems in culture at large. Their cultural practices and ideas are then adopted by the majority and the creative minority rises in influence, catch this, but does not seek to gain power. 
This creative, this creative problem-solving process stimulated growth and revitalization of civilizations as challenges were overcome by the creative minority. Now, his, his creative minority of choice that he studied was the early church in Rome. That this group of 120 people, this minority, such a small group of people, rose in influence as they solved the problems that Rome was facing, how to deal with orphans, how to treat people, all these different things. Like Christians were the ones stepping into those tough spaces and creating solutions to those big problems, and it elongated that civilization as we know it. And, and so he studied the church. He was obsessed with the early church. How did these 120 people who caught the Holy Spirit in an upper room one day, how did they have such an impact and an influence on culture? And, and I don't know if he would argue this or if it was another guy that I read this week would argue this, that, that as the church rose in power where they lost was, I'm sorry, as they rose in influence where the church lost was when they finally gained political power. And the church then no longer had to rely on being creative because they were given power. They were granted all this power by Rome, by Constantine, and their influence began to fall because they stopped creating solutions to problems. They just simply enjoyed the luxury of power. And so the creative minority dies and becomes a dominant majority as soon as access to power is achieved and we lose track of who we were supposed to be called to as a creative minority, creating and resourcing and getting into the thick of it and solving problems with the help of the Lord. So the creative minority then um, this rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, wrote this just great paper. You can Google it and read it. It's about a 20-minute read on your own. Um, it's in a 2013 lecture titled On Creative Minorities. And what he studied was actually the original creative minority was not the early church in Rome. It was actually the Jewish people who were exiled to Babylon. And so we're going to read about them. We're going to open up to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read about Daniel. And if you're not familiar with his story, um, I think it, we, it walks through it quite nicely. And he's going to be a little bit of who we are looking at um, for the next couple weeks as the archetype creative minority. So it says in Daniel 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So you have Jehoiakim, the good guy, Nebuchadnezzar, the bad guy, for the most part. Think of it that way. Nebuchadnezzar comes, he steamrolls Jerusalem, and, at, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So Jerusalem lost. They lost badly um, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this is where I think like the, the, uh, it's the original context of like, my dad can beat up your dad. You know what I mean? Where, where it was a lot more than just like, we, the Babylonians, beat you, the Israelites. It was our God has defeated your God. And here's the proof. His stuff is now sitting in the temple of our God. So I just want to have you feel the weight of what this would have been like for Israel, for, for the chosen people of God living in the promised land that God had given to them. It was just taken from them. And what it looks like is it looks like Yahweh has been defeated because his stuff now sits in the house of another God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, kind of like his governor guy, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility. Young men, pay attention. This can go in your Instagram handle later, Daniel 1.4. Youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And 
So like ladies, that's who you're looking for, right? Like show me the young man without blemish who's handsome and smart, you know, right? Give me that dude. What's happening here? What's happening is, is uh, Babylon was brilliant in the sense that they didn't just eliminate all of their enemies. They would capture the best and the brightest and the most promising young people and they would bring them over to Babylon. They treat them really, really well. And they would immerse them in Babylonian culture, then teach them in an attempt to strip away everything that they used to know of their former identity. And they would be reassimilated then to be Babylonian people. So the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. So it was a three-year cultural immersion program. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Read verse eight though, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel's life is gonna be marked by this unwilling approach to not compromise on what he believed. He's gonna get thrown into the, into the lion's den. Like his friends are gonna get tossed into a furnace. Like they are willing to die over some stuff. They are not willing to compromise. They are not going to give in and look fully like culture but they also aren't gonna to be totally detached from culture. Because what I didn't realize until this week and I started studying it, like, is that Jeremiah's letter, Jeremiah is writing to the first wave of exiles coming out of Jerusalem and going to Babylon, of which was Daniel. So I didn't realize that Jeremiah 29 was written to Daniel. Like I did realize if you have Jeremiah 29, 11 up in your house somewhere, like it's probably on a mug somewhere, it's probably on your wall. Uh, for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord, plans for good, not for evil, plans to give you future and hope. Like. I hope you know that that was written to a group who was going through it. Years of exile. And here's, here's how Jeremiah encourages them. If you flip over to Jeremiah 29, verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the Babylonian God did not defeat God. Like God sent Israel into exile there. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's a really interesting encouragement for Jeremiah to be writing to Daniel, like I would think that if it were me and I was gonna draw it up, Jeremiah would be like, listen, here's how you're gonna take down Nebuchadnezzar. Here's how you're gonna infiltrate his thing. You're gonna stab him. And then you're gonna take all your homies and you're gonna roll back to Jerusalem. Like, here's how you're gonna rise in power. Here's how you're gonna overthrow their evil government and how you're gonna establish our own. That's not what he says. First of all, he says, hey, you're gonna be there a while. Like build a house, plant gardens, you know how painfully long it takes to grow a garden? My goodness, like for my poor kids, you know, we plant tomato seeds back in like May and they're like, so when do we get to eat these things? I'm like, we just got to water it every single day or it's going to die. And then we'll finally get to eat some tomatoes like, like early, like late July, early August, right? It takes time. 
Jeremiah is saying, hey, you're gonna be there for a while. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the city. Like it's not to have this overthrowing coup that you're gonna start rising up. He says, bless the city that you're living in. Don't compromise. Do not compromise, but seek the welfare of the city. And, and so this is counterintuitive to how we think of living in exile, I think, in 2020. And, and there's so much hope that's placed, like even in this season, as we look forward to November 3rd, that we think, oh my gosh, if the right person doesn't win, the church is done for. The church is not done for. The church has thrived on the margins of society because we are forced to, to take action into our own hands, to see the widow and orphan, to see the sick, to see the least of these, and to be creative and to get involved with what Jesus is doing, to take his presence, his Holy Spirit, and to get into the darkest places of this earth. We don't, it doesn't need to rely on political power for the church to move forward. We, like the, the creative minority's greatest gift is influence. It's not power. Like you can start influencing people right now, regardless of what happens in the election. You, you have the capacity to bring the life of God into any circumstance, regardless of who ends up in office. That's our call to go forward and to get involved in the darkest places of this earth, to be creatives in the sense that we carry the presence of God wherever we go, not in a way that we would compromise and not in a way that we would try and abandon the exile that God has placed us in. And so we're over like this for the rest of the time today and the next week, we're going to look at, there are several marks of a uh, creative minority. And this pastor, John Tyson, who's way smarter than me, has written a book on this. And a lot of this is going to be some of his stuff that we're going to go through. Um, but he said, there, there are certain things, there are certain qualities that mark a creative minority. So this is the how, how are we going to do this? The first one he says is possibly the most important one. Um, you want to come up here, CB? He says, the most important mark of a creative minority is commitment. Commitment. Daniel and all his guys went into Babylon knowing that God hadn't been defeated. They were committed to continually worshiping and praying to him and serving him while they lived in exile. Like Daniel's life was marked by this just rugged commitment to Jesus. Even so, like in Daniel chapter six, it talks about how he still would pray three times a day. He would look out his window, he'd get on his knees and he hadn't seen a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem for years. And yet he still three times a day would fix his face towards Jerusalem and he would remember the God who saves them. And so he had this commitment. He had this commitment to prayer. He also had this commitment to the people. This is how John Tyson explains how a creative minority um, is involved in community. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. I love that phrase. Like you're about to get to a small group in this semester. You're like, yeah, that person kind of annoys me. They don't vote like me. They don't think like me, right? And, and, and the tendency in a lot of church people, just be real, is to bounce and to move around and to find a place where you are really comfortable and where people all think a lot like you because that's the easiest spot to be. But he says, no, we, like, we have to have this commitment to one another that's a stubbornly loyal relationship. Like you can offend me and I'm not going anywhere. You can make me mad and I will be right here. Like I'm not going anywhere. That, that we would actually approach community in this way, that we would be passionate about pursuing this kind of commitment to the people of God. 
Because like, I know, and here's how I wanna end this. I wanna challenge two groups of people. There's, there's a group of the church where, where we're just consistently bouncing from place to place until we find the right church, the perfect church. I just got news for you. Like, this ain't it. We ain't the perfect church. If you're expecting us to be perfect, like, we will let you down. Probably soon. <laughs> I just turned 30. Like, I don't know a lot of what I'm doing right now. So, so like, we just get so convinced that that oh man, if those people would just think more like me and we get so easily offended, it's a way we've become more like culture and I don't even think we realize it. And it stunts growth. It stunts your growth. If you're gonna consistently bounce from place to place to place, from group to group to group, and you're, you're gonna neglect this opportunity to have a stubbornly loyal relationship to one another, it's going to hinder your growth. You're gonna look like the same Christian in 30 years like that you do today. You're gonna have the same problems in 30 years as you do today if you, if you don't commit we have commitment issues. We need to get past it. We just see the opportunity for what's at hand. The other, the other one that I want to just address today is, I think there's some of you today that want to commit their lives to Christ. Like, I, I just can't help but feel like you hear about this series where we're talking about God's creative and how he's uniquely made you. And you're like, wait, that's different than what the world tells me. Like the world tells me I just used to like be a fish like way long ago. Like I just evolved from a fish. And so my life is just gonna be marked by this, like, I'm just gonna live, I'm gonna make some money. I'm gonna pursue the American dream, hopefully find a, uh, a spouse to share life with. We're gonna retire one day. We're gonna travel, see the world, then we'll die. And that's it. And so to hear about this kind of thought that like, no way, God has chosen you. Like God has placed you. He's uniquely made you. He's gifted you. He wants to be a part of your life right now. You're going, okay, wait, no, like I knew I was made for more than this. And I just want to provide the opportunity today for you to commit your life to him because there's no like half committing. Some of you maybe for a while, you've been like half committed to Jesus. Like I'll show up on Sundays, like I'll kind of do the thing, but I don't know, like a life marked by following the way of Jesus. That's scary. It is scary but it's the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. I think there's people in this room who'd raise their hand all over the place and say it's the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. So I just want to give you an opportunity to commit your life to him. I don't think there's anything special about this moment just because Caden's playing the piano, just because we're all in this room together. Like it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. Like you can commit your life to Christ at any time. I just want to give you the space to do it right now. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to have all of our church family will stand and pray together. And so if this is you, if you're ready, just take, this, take the plunge and commit. Like I would just invite you in doesn't mean you're going to be perfect right away. It doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away. But it means that you will, you will now have the life of God in your life. The presence of God will be in you and you will begin to see things like you haven't seen them before. So can we just pray together, church family? Well, Lord, here we are. And I pray for every heart right now that kind of feels this tug. Just like, wait, no, I want in. I want to do it. I pray right now in this moment, God, that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their heart and they would see. And so if that's you today and you want to make this commitment, I just want you to pray like this. God, I am committing myself to you. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I've failed in certain ways, God. But right now I'm turning my life to you. I'm surrendering to you. I'm believing that you are who you say you are. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You raised from the dead and you can give that life to me. So right now I just commit to you in Jesus' name.
you just prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up for me? Church family, would we all just stand together now? God, I pray that we would be a church that's committed wholeheartedly to you, that we'd also be wholeheartedly committed to one another. We wouldn't be expecting that people are perfect in this room, that we wouldn't be expecting that everyone thinks like us or operates like us, God, but would we uh, find a place here to be a part of a stubbornly loyal web of relationships where we wholeheartedly get to pursue after you. So Jesus, I pray that you'd come and that you'd maybe confront us in our tendency to be offended, our tendency to bounce once things get tough. Help us to plant. Help us to throw roots down deep, Lord, that we would grow and we'd mature and we'd bear fruit in every season. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.